This podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be relied upon as legal, financial, or professional advice. A professional advisor should be consulted regarding your specific situation. It is also not an offer to sell or purchase Edgepoint investment funds. Welcome everyone to this quarter's Edgepoint Fixed Income Commentary Podcast. My name is Juan Gomez and I'm a partner at Edgepoint. I'm joined by Derek Skomorowski, newly minted portfolio manager and longtime Patriots fan. So Derek, you begin your commentary talking about how often investors are blind to the risk they're taking until it's too late. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, uh, thanks Juan and, and thank you uh, everyone for joining us on uh, the first ever Edgepoint Radio Hour. Uh, hopefully we keep it to 20 minutes or so not to uh, occupy too much of your time. The truth is people think that bubbles are rare in markets, and this couldn't be further from the truth. The majority of the people listening to this call uh, will certainly know of the tech bubble in the late 1990s and the housing bubble in the mid-2000s. And the majority would probably remember hearing stories about the Dutch tulip mania back in the 1600s and even the South Sea bubble in 18th century Britain. Even thinking back to these bubbles that we all remember totally understates how often they occur. I think it was the economist John Kenneth Galbraith that mentioned in American history, the bubbles have really occurred every 20 to 30 years. Uh, Going back to the 1700s, we had real estate bubbles over and over again. You had property bubbles, bubbles in the number of banks. Uh, There was periods in the 1800s where effectively any establishment with four walls and a roof uh, was calling itself a bank, and it it turned into a horrific bubble. These banks would each uh, issue their own currencies, which evolved into its own uh, bubble at the time. You had bubbles in canal digging companies, bubbles in railroad companies. You had bubbles over and over throughout the history of the United States. One of the most famous ones, the Florida property bubble of the 1920s, uh, is probably very reminiscent to another property bubble uh, to a lot of listeners on this call if you want to dig into reading about it. We all know about the crash of the 1920s, the Great Crash that led to the Great Depression, uh, and so on and so forth. Over and over again in history, these bubbles have occurred. One characteristic common to substantially all bubbles is that each one had a hero. Someone had figured out early on, they had the foresight to get in before everyone else and somehow managed to ride the bubble right on to the top. The go-go markets of the 1960s, uh, some will recall hearing stories about this one as well, is another uh, common bubble. There were stocks at the time that many listening will uh, remember, Polaroid, Xerox were big stocks at the time. The hero of this market was a man by the name of Jerry Tsai. So this guy was, of course, the hottest ticket in town. I think he was hired as some kind of child prodigy. I don't know. He was 25 years old, hired by by Fidelity uh, in the 1950s. He was the father of the first ever momentum-driven fund strategy. So he ran this portfolio for Fidelity for seven years from 1958 to 1965. And generated a 296% total return over the period. So quite incredible. Of course, he was walking on on water after that and wanted to go out on his own, launched his own fund called the Manhattan Fund in 1966. 
and had a pretty good year in the first year he delivered a 39% return. By the end of 1969, the fund had lost 90% of its value. Think about that. The point here is these people at market tops, they're not heroes. What they are is they're gamblers. Truth is, we're going to say it over and over again on this uh, podcast, the house always wins. If someone is generating phenomenal returns in a bull market, and it's coming from taking some ridiculous form of risk, at some point you have to pay the piper. And unfortunately, paying the piper often means catastrophic losses for the end investor. So at Edgepoint, it seems like managing risk is a critical part of the investment approach. Yeah, it's the most important thing that we do in in managing the portfolios every day. Uh, the treatise we'll call it on on risk management is a book by the economist uh, Peter L. Bernstein. Uh, the book was called Against the Gods, and that's a pretty fancy title. But the book describes how over the past fifteen hundred years, uh, it was the invention of numbers and probabilities really that gave us the tools that we needed to manage risk. This seems like a grandiose idea, but what we're doing every day in managing risk is we're really trying to predict the future. We're trying to imagine all the terrible things that might happen, and then we're trying to prepare the portfolios for them. Before the invention of numbers and probabilities, really the best people could do to manage risks was, as you can imagine, pray to the gods. You pray to the gods, you would do the rain dance. Uh, before deciding what they wanted to plant in their fields, farmers would go visit the oracles and ask them what the weather would be like uh, for the growing season ahead. Today, we have the tools to help deal with that future. With the evolution of math, as you can imagine, rather than going to visit the oracles, farmers a thousand years ago realized they could set up insurance co-ops and they could cover the losses from one farmer who had had drought with the insurance premiums that were paid by farmers in areas that had much better growing conditions. At the same time, casinos and gambling halls started turning up or appearing because these same tools allowed them to quantify risk. They could predict just how often a combination of numbers would come up on a set of dice, which gave them the opportunity to make profitable bets when the odds were on their side. The thing to remember here is that whether you are the farmer receiving an insurance payout or you are the gambler on a hot streak at a casino, the short-term winner in most of these transactions was in fact the long-term loser. The farmer receiving an insurance payout because they had had a bad growing season would pay substantially more in premiums over the life of their farm than they would ever receive an insurance payout. So that's how insurance works. The winning side there in most instances is the insurance co-op itself or the insurance company with the intermediary. Similarly with the casino, the casino does not care when someone at the craps table goes on a hot streak. They know exactly that the odds are on their side and over time, the house always wins. The casino is laughing at you, knowing that it's only a matter of time before the gambler's money becomes their money. Time is the dominating factor in gambling. It's what brings a hot streak crashing into reality. Gamblers really are betting against the clock. They want 
their luck to run while odds are suspended. Uh, in Peter Bernstein's book, he describes how risk and time really are two sides to the same coin. If risk means that we are grappling with the future, then if there is no future, then you're not taking any risk. Time magnifies risk. And the nature of the risk that we take is shaped by the time horizon. The future is the playing field. If Jerry Sai is taking stupid bets, buying momentum stocks that have no value over a long enough period of time, it's impossible that it doesn't end in collapse. The truth is, Jerry Sai should have gotten her out while he was ahead. Thanks, Derek. Um, that sounds like it's a good addition for my uh, dry January reading list. So you suggest that one area where the average investor might be taking far more risk than they're aware of is in their bond portfolios. Could you just give us a sense of what investors are facing today? Yeah, bond markets have come to be accepted as some effective risk-free guaranteed return in investment portfolios. And we totally reject this position. Everybody knows that interest rates have declined over the past 30 years. They've declined by a lot, actually. Uh, if you bought a 10-year Government of Canada bond, for example, in 1990, you were getting a 9 or 10% interest rate. That interest rate the end of 2021 was 1.7%. 1.7% is not enough for anything. In order to deliver even a, a positive return from here, fund managers really have one of two choices. They can take more risk in an attempt to increase that return, or they can dramatically reduce the fees uh, that are charged on their bond portfolios universally, uh, as I'm sure everyone would expect, uh, bond managers have decided to take more risk. We're seeing more risk in bond portfolios today than we've ever seen in the past. One area that we see more risk, as an example, is the amount of duration uh, that we're finding in the typical bond portfolio. Managers are buying longer and longer dated bonds because interest rates, typically speaking, are higher the further out you lend. Uh, and that is true. And in doing so, they are increasing the potential for returns in their funds, but they're also significantly increasing the interest rate risk of these portfolios or the sensitivity that these portfolios would exhibit if interest rates were ever to rise in the future. Uh, we saw evidence of this in the last 12 months from the beginning of 2021 to the end of the year. Interest rates rose from 0.7% to 1.4%. This is nothing if you think back to the high single-digit interest rates that we had uh, going back to the 1990s. And yet this very small increase in interest rates was enough to see the average fixed income portfolio in Canada decline by over 3%. Uh, more importantly, it's almost impossible that at some point in the future, interest rates don't rise dramatically from here. At some point over the next 100 years, it is almost a certainty that we see the high single digit interest rates that we saw in the 1990s, as an example. We have no idea if that high single-digit interest rate world happens 99 years from now or if it happens tomorrow. But the fact is, in owning these 
portfolios that are highly sensitive to that eventuality, you're betting against the clock. And owning a bond that matures in 30 years, yielding 2%, and hoping for a different return seems like a very silly bet if you're simultaneously taking this kind of risk should interest rates rise in any meaningful way in the future. As we mentioned before, time is the enemy of the gambler, and it seems like time is running out for the owners of some of these bond portfolios. So it seems like the average investor is just paying a hefty fee for this exposure to return-free risk. Yeah, exactly, because interest rates have declined as much as they have. Uh, We know that returns going forward are going to be a whole lot lower than they used to be. And yet the fee charged on the average bond portfolio was exactly the same as it was 20 years ago. One study out of the U.S. uh, went back to 2001 and found that approximately 11% of the yield or the return potential, let's call it, of a bond portfolio was paid in fees. Uh, Today, that same number is 31%. So 31% of the potential return in a bond portfolio in the U.S., is going to pay the manager. In Canada, it's it's actually quite a bit worse. In Canada, uh, the average investor in in bond portfolios in Canada is paying 55%. So more than half of their potential return is being paid to the manager. So in effect, these fixed income investors are positioned for all risk, no reward, and all the glory is going to the manager, uh, even if it works out. Would you say this is why we launched the Edgepoint Monthly Income Portfolio? Yeah, that's exactly correct. We want to give investors that need to own fixed income the opportunity to avoid these kinds of risks in their portfolio. It's not a portfolio that's going to make anyone rich in the current interest rate environment, but it should give investors peace of mind for a part of their portfolio they probably don't want to have to spend a lot of time thinking about. I mentioned the two choices that fund managers have is to take more risk or reduce their fee. While everyone else is taking more risk, we've decided to take the opposite approach and we've substantially reduced the fee that we are charging on the portfolio. It should give us a meaningful head start um, in delivering superior returns over time. That's not to say we're not taking risk. As with all of our portfolios, we think of ourselves as business analysts first. And by studying businesses every day, we think that taking business risk in our portfolios is a sensible risk to take. And so we do take the risk of lending money to businesses in this portfolio as we do in our other portfolios. It's a risk that's more commonly called credit risk um, in fixed income. And again, it's the risk of lending money to businesses. The reason that we take this risk is because we think we have a skill set in managing it. And we think that the reward for taking the risk far outweighs the reality of the risk Um, of participating in this market. We really think that we'll be more than adequately compensated for the very low credit risks that we'll be taking uh, in this portfolio by lending uh, to very high quality companies. Again, because we're taking such low risk um, and because managing risk is our primary job as investment managers, uh, we're charging that commensurately uh, low fee. In the short term, it is almost inevitable that we underperform bond portfolios that are taking entirely different risks than we're taking. It's impossible that we don't uh, underperform again over shorter periods of time. 
uh, over the long run, we have a massive advantage because, again, of that lower fee that we're taking than what else is available out there. And at the end of the day, in the very long run, uh, our expectation is that the monthly income portfolio will be the lifeboat when the risks that we think are prevalent in the bond markets come screaming into reality. Well, since you mentioned our other portfolios, um, Edgepoint Variable Income Portfolio seems to take a more aggressive stance than uh, the monthly income portfolio in terms of how it views risk. How does EPVIP's approach to risk differ from other fixed income portfolios? Well, this goes back to uh, the book that I mentioned written by Peter Bernstein, uh, addressing we're talking about all of the different uh, big thinkers uh, of the past 1500 years and their uh, how they really viewed this new world where they could manage risk in the future. They could they had the tools to predict to an extent what was going to happen or at least measure it and 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 quantify it and position themselves for it. These thinkers did not use those newfound tools to live these mundane uninterrupted lives. What they did was they, use those tools to profit or to capitalize on the future when the odds were stacked in their favor. It is a fact of life that without risk, there's absolutely no potential for reward. You can't get rich without taking some kind of gamble. And there are two sides to every bet. If we go back to the example of the casino, Someone at the craps table can be going on an absolute hot streak, right? In every roll of the dice, there is a winner and a loser, but the casino never worries about losing money. It doesn't matter how long of a hot streak that gambler goes on, the casino knows that time is on its side. The odds are in their favor. It is only a matter of time before those odds track back towards reality. This is how we view risk in the edge point variable income portfolio by carefully studying each of the businesses that we lend money to, we're stacking the odds in our own favor. If we take a long-term view of every investment that we make, just like the casino, we know that time is on our side. Long-term investing is all about risk management. It's why we highlight the longevity of EdgePoint's investment approach as often as we do, dating back to the 1970s. If you can withstand cycles as we have with our investment approach, what you're doing is you're converting the future from an enemy as it is to the gambler into an opportunity as it is to the casino. So it sounds like EPVIP sees mispriced risk as something to take advantage of rather than just simply avoid. Could you elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, if everyone valued every risk in exactly the same way, then the truth is there would not be any opportunity, but people don't. Uh, different people value different risks differently. Some people are legitimately afraid of thunderstorms. They think that they might get hit by lightning, even though they know it's a tiny probability event they will get nervous when they hear a thundercloud approaching. Uh, it's similar with people on airplanes. You go through a 
turbulent uh, part of the trip. And some people will sit there completely relaxed. They'll be calm as a cucumber while others are panicking. They can't stand the turbulence, even though they know that flying in, in an airplane realistically is safer than driving in a car. So this response that differs across people to risks in everyday life are even more prevalent in markets. There are times where gut dominates the response that people have to various risks. And when these risks are mispriced, uh, we can take advantage of it with impunity given the structure that we have in the edge point variable income portfolio. Uh, the evolution of the portfolio over the past 24 months, starting way back in September of 2019, really colors exactly what I mean by taking advantage of risks at different points in the market. If you look back at our top five holdings, for example, back in September of 2019, we were taking risk by lending money to companies that were perceived as especially risky at the time. Uh, companies in there that you might recognize, Paul Seismic had just bought its largest competitor. Uh, we had lent money to PHI Helicopter uh, when it came out of bankruptcy that summer, summer of 2019, and, and Mattel was in there as well. This was a toy company uh, whose largest or one of their, their second largest customer was Toys R Us. Um, had just gone through bankruptcy itself and was struggling as well. Uh, remarkably, all five of our largest positions going into the pandemic, including these three examples I just mentioned, were refinanced during the pandemic at a lower rate than we were initially lending money to them at. Uh, put another way, the fundamentals of these businesses or at, least the, or at least the perception of the fundamentals of these businesses improved to a degree that they were able to borrow money at a lower rate after the pandemic hit, which is an incredible example of the improvements or the mispricing that was available in lending money to these companies going into 2020. As these bonds were paid down and we received the proceeds at maturity, we had to find other areas to take risk. And so once again, we looked for new mispricings that really in reality became more prevalent um, with the onset of the pandemic. We lent money to Auto Canada uh, when they were struggling to refinance their bonds. No one had any interest in looking at a car dealership at the time. Uh, later in 2020, we helped Optiva simplify its capital structure. Uh, more recently in 2021, we uh, participated in a bond offering to Cineplex that provided it hopefully with the cash to get it to the other side of the pandemic. And more recently, uh, in th just this past December, we lent money to a company called Shawcore at an attractive 9% interest rate um, that should help them make the transition from an oil field services company into a less cyclical, more diversified, industrial corporation. Uh, every one of these examples, I think, is an excellent illustration of how risk at different times in the market can get mispriced. And for those willing to take a view on that risk and capitalize on the mispricing, it can be highly, highly lucrative. We're trying to stack the odds in our favor. It doesn't mean that it's going to be smooth sailing the whole way through, 
but the fact is that time is on our side. Over the next five years, think of it this way, over the next five years, the casino has a pretty good sense uh, for how often a gambler is going to roll double sixes. And in the same way, we have a pretty good sense of what these companies that we lend money to are going to look like over the period. In the long run, the truth is the house always wins. We've said it over and over over the course of this podcast. And at Edgepoint, we're trying to put the odds on our side. We want to be the house. We do not want to be some degenerate trying to turn a 2% yielding bond into something that's dramatically different. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, Derek. Uh, as always, it's been very informative. Do you have any uh, concluding remarks for the listeners? Yeah, last thing I'll say is just it's so easy to outperform in the short term just by betting that something that will happen eventually won't happen tomorrow. All you need to do if you want to outperform in the short term, buy momentum stocks, use a bit of leverage, off you go. But this is statistically stupid. We all know that. In the good times, they never last. The fact is doing these things will end in misery. The managers who take these risks will come and go and we're always going to be measured against whoever's at the top. It doesn't matter what kind of market cycle that we're in. But throughout these cycles, edge points approach, it's going to remain the same. We're going to try to stack the odds in our favor by managing the inevitable risks that we know will come along the way. Thank you guys very much for your time. Information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. This is not an endorsement or recommendation of any security. Edgepoint Investment Group may be buying or selling positions in securities mentioned. No endorsement of any third parties or their advice, opinions, information, products, or services is expressly given or implied by Edgepoint Investment Group. This podcast contains certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking, Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance results, and the actual results or market developments may differ materially from these statements. The whole or any parts of this podcast may not be reproduced, copied, transmitted, or disclosed to third parties without the consent of Edgepoint Investment Group.